microphone police can now be, you can now start recording. Um, and uh, any questions about anything from this morning's message or Luke in general? Any questions about anything from this morning's message? See, the microphones are making everybody scared. Sorry, it would happen. J JP. So last week um, was talking about Jesus healing the paralytic. Uh -huh. um, and in verse 20 of Luke 5, he says, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Is there any significance to the fact that he saw the multiples faith and then healed the one as opposed to forgiving the sins of all of them? Well, the other guys are presumably still on the roof, right? So I would assume all of their sins are forgiven because he saw all of their faith. He's only addressing the one he can actually talk to who's right in front of him. But this isn't, no, no but it is, it is important to say what it isn't. This is not um, vicarious faith, proxy faith. It's not as though my faith can be credited as salvation to some other individual. So this man is part of the them all. He saw there, including the paralytic's faith. And then he spoke to the paralytic. Presumably the same is true. But, but notice, Jesus isn't forgiving him. He's telling him he is forgiven. There's a distinction there. In other places, and this is important, in other places, Jesus' words accomplish the action. So Jesus rebukes the demon, the demon is rebuked. Jesus speaks over and rebukes the fever, the fever is rebuked. Jesus' words do not accomplish the forgiveness. Jesus announces to him that forgiveness has occurred. Your sins, literally past tense, have been forgiven. Like even before I spoke, they've been forgiven. He's, he's telling him what has taken place. Um, now there is a sense in which he's forgiving sins. His speech is not removing guilt. The man's faith did. And so presumably the same is true even for the people of whom Jesus did not speak. It's not as though if Jesus doesn't say it, your sins aren't forgiven. Does that make sense? So, and Luke distinguishes that even the way he says it, because in other places he makes it clear the power of his word. Jesus' word is not what is forgiving this man. Um, something else has, has already happened. It's, it's perfect passive. Divine person, uh, your sins are in the state of having been forgiven, is what he literally is saying. So, um, so yeah, Jesus' speech is not accomplishing the forgiveness. He's, he's telling him about something that's already been accomplished in the man's life. Um, that's the nature of the perfect verb tense. Does that make sense? So yeah, he's under the same kind of salvation that Abraham was Microphone. So he would be under the same sort of justification that Abraham was under because he believed God and it yeah. was counted yeah. as righteousness. Well, th and, and that's an important thing to make. We were talking this morning about Jesus bringing something new. There are discontinuities and continuities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of the discontinuities involve the food laws, involve the clothing laws, involve the national locus of the people of God being in Israel with a geographic center and the temple of building. Those things are all different. The people of God are transnational. We have no geographic center. Um, there are no food laws. 
one of the continuities that Paul argues is that justification, forgiveness, has always been by faith. People are not forgiven by the law. So, so three, three times Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews is, is the third one, um, cite Genesis 12, Abraham believed God and his credit to him as righteousness. And so Paul is using his model of the gospel he's preaching is Abraham. So that's one of the things that's identical. That's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 can cite, I don't know, like 15 different people. Consider the faith of Abraham. Consider the faith of Moses. Why? Have faith like they did. Like, there's a continuity. Here's something you should imitate. Here's something that you can replicate. They should look the same on both sides of the covenant. So, so salvation has always been by faith. Um, how you live out your faith, very different. So the, the, the Mosaic Covenant says, okay, to all of y'all who believe, wear these clothes, don't eat these foods, here's how you would express your faith. Here's how you will show your fidelity to me. And, and part of what God's doing is making um, what one passage in the Old Testament says, a peculiar people. He's making the Jews not look like their neighbors in just about every way, how they eat, how they dress, how they worship, how they conduct themselves. They're set apart. And that's part of what's going on in the law system as well as the sacrificial system, preparing them for Christ's sacrifice and all those things. But the big mistake that a lot of the Jews made was, if we participate in these things, we're good. No, it's always been, and that's why Paul goes back to Abraham, it's always been justification by faith. And then the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses, gives people of faith a way to live out their faith. It's why David in Psalm 51, after killing a man and stealing his wife, does not say, I need to offer some sacrifices. Sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired, else I would give them the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit and contrite heart, O God, these you will not despise. Then can, you know, equip me of blood guiltiness, O Lord, O God, of my salvation, my mouth will sing forth your praise. Then I will offer burnt bulls and burnt offerings to you. So what he's recognizing is there's something underneath the Mosaic Covenant that's primary that he needs to do business with. And so I'm not going to mess about with the sacrificial system. I need to get down to this broken heart, contrite spirit. Once, once I've dealt with God on that level, I absolutely will go offer you sacrifices according to the Mosaic law. But first, let's deal with the real issue. And then expressing my faith. Does that make sense? So the Mosaic law is sitting on top of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the mistake the Pharisees made was getting it backwards. If we just sort of keep the Mosaic law or the version of it that we've rewritten that we can keep, we're good. So did the Pharisees in this passage completely miss it by thinking that, you know, that here Jesus is saying your sins are forgiven you and he's pointing back to Old Testament reality that everyone's sins are forgiven if they believe God, right? Yes. But so why are they thinking that, you know, only, why are they saying then only God can forgive sins alone? Because I can say Abraham's sins are forgiven, but because of God's, Forgiving power, right? Right. Here's, here's the reason. There is a sense in which Jesus is taking the divine prerogative, okay? Because Jesus is speaking on behalf of God, right? He is, so they say, who else can forgive sins but God alone? Um, the guy didn't say he had faith. The guy didn't make a proclamation of faith. Jesus sees that, and Jesus speaking for God, your sins are forgiven, that's pretty bold, and that's what they're tripping over, is who has the prerogative to make that announcement? 
Um, really only the only equivalent would be the high priest on the day of atonement after offering the sacrifice could announce forgiveness. There is really no other precedent in the Old Testament other than Nathan when he goes to confront David. And David confesses, and Nathan Nathan says, you're not going to die, the Lord has taken away. But there, he's even separating himself further. The Lord has taken away your iniquity from you. You're not going to die. Unlike, say, like Roman Catholicism, where the priests are constantly announcing forgiveness, there isn't taking that is not happening in the Old Testament. So yes, it's justification by faith, but you don't get anyone to come along and say, okay, you're good. You know. Um, so for Jesus to be that bold, he's what, what party is he speaking for? Yeah, that that and that's and they get it, and they, that's what they trip up on, and that's the point Jesus wants to make, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And it may well be the case that Jesus isn't the one who forgave him. I'm just saying the speech is not what forgives him. Otherwise, everybody needs Jesus to say your sins are for you know that, that's not the issue. We aren't we don't know when and how and by whom his sins were forgiven. The way Luke tells it makes it clear, unlike the other speech acts of, of Jesus, it's not the actual in the speaking of it that the forgiveness takes place. That's, that's all the point I'm trying to make. Um, good, good question. Any, anything on that or any questions further from that? Mr. Kingery, all the way in the back. No, 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 we got a microphone. It's coming. And you got to put it, you got to put it close to your mouth. Yes. Like that. Okay. Did, did you already answer the question about their faith healed them? Because some places uh, he healed people who didn't have faith, obviously. Right. I, I was. I have not understood that. Okay. Um, I, we did not address that, but I will address that partially now. Um, Jesus, the faith of the man is why he was forgiven. Okay? Um, Jesus heals people who have no faith. For example, Lazarus, he's dead. He weren't, he weren't believing nothing. He was dead. Um, in many cases, however, we're reading, we haven't gotten there yet. There are part of, you're right, Dave. There are places where Jesus could do no miracles because they didn't believe. The parallel account, in fact, of what took place in Nazareth in um, either Matthew or Mark's account of that um, states Jesus could do no miracles there because of their unbelief. Um, in other places, he does tell it to people, your faith has made you well. That, that does happen, right? Um, that's not what's taken place yet. So I haven't studied and worked through all of that because we haven't hit that yet in Luke. All, all I can say is individual faith is always the cause of forgiveness. Or as the reformers would put it, justification by faith alone is always the mechanism, the trigger mechanism of receiving Christ's righteousness and forgiveness. Always and forever, world without end, amen. It always has been this way. It will always be this way. You must believe, right? Um, healings happen for a multitude of causes in the, in the Bible. Um, in some cases, it's the faith of another individual. The father healed my child, and because of the father's faith, the child gets healed. So it's not her faith, but it's someone else expresses faith, and the request gets made. In other places, the person has no faith at all. In other places, um, the woman touching Jesus' garment and the issue of blood stops. There doesn't seem to be a uniform pattern or criteria. It gets back to what Jesus said to the Nazare- those in Nazareth. God heals who he wants to heal, and you don't get to tell him how and when and where. There were a lot of widows in Israel in those days. God sent Elijah to one of them. 
There are a lot of lepers in Israel. God sent Elisha to, well, one of them to Elisha. That's it. And so part of it is there is some, I guess, wow, God does what he wants, and God does some pretty remarkable things. And there isn't a clear-cut pattern to everything. Um, I don't know if that's where you're going or if that answers your question, but that's as much as I'm, I'm able to answer at the moment. That works? Okay, okay. I said I had nothing to say, and then I talked for three minutes. But, you know, hey, that's, that's par for the course, right? Okay, any other questions, thoughts, complaints, observations? Yes, Wanda. Here comes the mic. Well, in Isaiah 62, mm-hmm. where you said that the, the bridegroom re, um, and the bride and that God rejoiced over them, yes. right? Okay. Yes. So then I'm wondering, I know that your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west and all of that. Yeah. But you know, like day to day, you're just convicted. That was yeah. prideful. Oh, your tongue said that again. And you just kind of feel so unworthy, even though you repent yeah. of it. Yeah. Is, can we still claim that with confidence? He rejoices over us despite all. Yes, that. yes. Here's, here's the distinction. Um, we deal with God. Go, go to First Peter. Go to First Peter. First Peter makes this distinction, I think, in a very helpful way. Um, okay. Um, if you call as him Father who judges... There it is. Okay, good. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 18. Now here's here's the point. Oh, sorry. Excellent question, Greg. First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen. Now here's the distinction that I'll, I'll tell you in short the argument Peter's making, and then we can read it. Everyone else in this world is going to face God as judge. You're going to face Him as Father. You will never, never, when you sin day by day, you are you incurring the judge and the death sentence. You certainly can incur a father's displeasure, but I hope my children have confidence that no matter how much they may displease me in a moment, I rejoice over them. They, they are my delight. And so that's the relationship we're in. So absolutely, Hebrews 12 will say, we can invite a father's discipline, and he, he scourges all those whom he accepts. In fact, if you've gone without discipline, you're not really his children, is what the author of Hebrews says. So there's a very real sense in which, according to First John, we need to continually confess our sins, because our family, familial relationship can get compromised. But we will never, if, you, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've turned to him, you will never face the uh, angry judge in the law court. And so that, that's important when we come to God for forgiveness. We're not approaching the judgment seat and throne. I, I know I deserve hell again. Please don't send me to hell again. Rather, it's Abba, Father, forgive me. Sorry I've done what displeases you. you know, it's the difference between Jesus um, baptizing his disciples being baptized, and then when he starts washing Peter's feet, and he says, oh, Lord, no. And he says, no, your, your feet need to be clean. Well, then wash my whole body. Well, you're already clean. When at, for, at salvation, we get baptized. Our feet keep getting dirty. So anyway, that's, let me read the first Peter thing. That's the argument he makes. It's, and what he's saying to the reader is, it is a bold and remarkable and amazing thing that we get to call God Father. Therefore, take it seriously, because everyone else is going to deal with him as judge. So here we go, 18. Um, where's that, 16? 16. Um, we'll go to 15. Uh, 14. 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And so, so there it is. If you call on him as father, it's kind of like taking to some kid whose father is like a Supreme Court justice. Or, or, or someone who deals with capital crimes and he's sentencing people to the death sentence. And hey, little boy, you better take your dad seriously. You call him dad. There's plenty of people who have to call him judge. And that's Peter's argument here. So no, um, there is a sense in which, yeah, we're unworthy. I've displeased my father. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize sin. And if the Holy Spirit's convicting us of sin, we shouldn't downplay that. But it's all within the context of a family relationship. There isn't a fear of ultimate rejection. There isn't a fear of, of, of wrath and of a sword. There certainly is the fear of discipline and the fear of God's displeasure, the fear of compromising my fellowship and my relationship with him, the fear of bringing further shame and reproach upon his name. There's plenty of things to be concerned about to take your sin seriously, but, but that he would utterly cast us off. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And that's why one of the reasons Paul emphasizes that. So there's plenty of things that can go wrong there. What can't go wrong is you being separated from the love of God in Christ. That's not on the table. Does that, that help? Yeah. I knew he didn't, that he wouldn't cast us. I thought, is he getting like, I'm getting a little sick of this one. <laughs> I, don't know. I didn't think he probably was rejoicing over me, but yeah. Do you have an ESV? Yes, I do. <laughs> Freudian slip. <laughs> now, microphone, mi- microphone, Wendell, microphone. I want this recorded. Uh, but that makes a difference. E- ESV says as in the New King James Version, as opposed to the Germs Version. Um, it has a uh, call on the Father. Which could be, if unless you read the study notes that uh, John MacArthur has, okay. it would lead you to believe you're just saying another name mm. of the Father of the Trinity. Okay. So I, th- okay. that's really uh, an important distinction. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. That's yeah. all I had. And, and turn to Romans chapter 8. Let me back this point up from another passage if there's less to be any. This is, this does not hang on that one passage. I think Peter illustrates it well, but, but Paul makes it even more emphatically in Romans 8, um, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And, that, and that's part, um, Wanda, of, of the truth that happens when we come to Christ. God is suddenly for us. I'm always for my children. Sometimes that means hugging them. Sometimes that means disciplining them. But it's always because I'm for them. It's always for their good. Um, judges don't always sentence people to punishments for their good. There's, there, we've lost that to some degree, but there's absolutely a punitive, purely punishment. This is justice. You know, I mean, we hope the people repent, but there's nothing, there's nothing corrective about, about um, um, taking someone's life of, of the death sentence, right? You're not trying to reform them. <laughs> They're going to be dead at the end of it, right? Um, there's something purely punitive. God's discipline to his children is never that. It's always 
correcting his sons. It's always redemptive. So even though we can receive his discipline, it's not the discipline of the law and discipline of wrath. It's a father's loving, correct. He's always for us. He never stops being for us even when we're sinning. He's just going to be for us in correction. So keep reading. Verse 32, and then he he gives reasons to, to, to give us confidence that God is indeed for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son that gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The ultimate proof that God is for us is he gave up his son for us. Then he moves on to the next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And the implication, no one. Now, there's a sense in which if you'd just been following me around today, you'd have some things you could throw in my face. You'd have some sin you could... You could you, you know, Satan could throw before God. The point is, in the law court, case is closed. It's done. Just he's just. We remember back in Zechariah when the uh, in in chapter four, where the high priest has the vision of Joshua, the high priest standing before the court of God, and Satan's there to accuse him. The the prosecutor doesn't even get to open his mouth. He gets rebuked and kicked out of court. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the picture. Is oh yeah, in one sense you could. You, who could accuse me? Well, you know, my kids could accuse me. My wife could accuse me. My friends could accuse me. There's all sorts of people who know me who could accuse me. God's court is closed. There is, there is no, there's no appeal to that judgment. So when he says, who can bring a charge against God's elected as God who justifies, the, the logic is once God has justified, there's no longer any court to bring a charge to. It's not, you can't bring a charge because I never sin anymore. It's the verdict's been rendered. There's no double jeopardy. Just. And so that's the confidence that we operate. And then he goes on further. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the only person you'd think who could potentially condemn us is Jesus because, you know, he was sinless. He took our rap. And what's he doing? He's interceding for us. And that's the basis why he can say what he says in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in, in, not spared from these things, but in all these things, all these things might happen, sword, tribulation, in them, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is making that point pretty emphatically. And I think it's because he wants us to believe that pretty emphatically. Now, that doesn't mean we can't get disciplined and spanked for our good. What it does mean is, Never let it enter your mind once you're his that he would ever cast you off or that you could ever be separated from him. Whatever is going on, it won't be that. That's, that's the point. God remains for you even, in, even when his demonstration of being for you is discipline. It's not, I hate you and I'm angry at you. It's a father dealing with his kids. Okay, we got five minutes. Any, yes, Elsa. So what we've been talking about, is that not just sanctification? Yes. What we're talking about is sanctification. Are you guys familiar with the three categories? I was talking to Kingery about this yesterday. Um, 
the Bible refers to our salvation in three different ways. And, and um, I want to be careful. You think of a jewel with three facets on it. I, I don't want you to think there are three like separate things. There's, there's one salvation, but I don't know if you've thought about this. The Bible can speak about our salvation in the past tense, in the present ongoing sense, and in the future. All are equally biblical. So Romans 13 can say the day of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And Ephesians, I mean, and Philippians 2 can say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you can speak in the past tense as well, having been saved by faith, right? Um, and what the Bible is talking about, there are three parts, aspects, and the theologians put Asians at the end to make them feel good. Um, and so there's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And what we're talking about in justification is the legal declaration of innocence and, and of righteousness that God gives to those who have faith in Jesus. That takes place in a, here's the important distinction, that takes place in a moment in time, and it is God working alone. The, the term for that is monergistic not a word you use commonly. You hear synergy all the time, two or more working together, that synergy, monergism, is one working. So it's God does it. I don't help out with God doing it. I have faith. That pulls the trigger, if you will, and God justifies. And it takes place in a moment in time. It is binary. One moment you are unjust, the next moment you're declared just. The, the reason why I stress that is um, I was just listening the other day listening to um, a mess, my, my message on the Reformation, because I was chatting with someone about it, and I was reminded that one of the differences between Roman Catholic teaching and, and what I'm laying out is they would view justification as a process. You have to improve upon it. That was one of the quotes that I read from, from the Canons of Trent. And so it's this process. You're becoming more and more just. You're becoming more and more just. And, and if you don't finish that process here, that's what purgatory is for. You ever wonder what purgatory is for? It's to finish that process of purification and justification. And so one of the disagreements the Reformers had, and I have with, with that teaching, is no, the Bible teaches that justification is in moment in time. We saw that in Romans 8. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Or Romans 5.1, therefore, having been, past tense, justified by faith, we are having peace with God. Um, it's a current possession. Okay, so that's justification. That's the declaration of forgiveness. Then you have sanctification. And sanctification is simply being made more like Jesus. It's, it's, it's being refined. Um, God is holy, and the fundamental notion of holiness is separate or other than. We've talked about that before, right? So holy can be used in different categories. This, this shovel can be holy, and all it means is you don't use it for any common everyday activity. You use it to do what God... It has one purpose only. It's set apart for that. In a moral sphere, holiness is God's moral perfection. He's unlike everything else. And so we are called to be saints, and we're declared to be saints. Saint is simply the same concept of holy. It's just now the Greek word. Um, and so we progressively grow in Christ. We progressively grow in our faith. We progressively grow in obedience. Probably the best passage for that would be 2 Peter 1. Let's go there real fast. We got, yeah, I got just enough time for this. Okay. And so here's the distinction. Sanctification is progressive and it is a synergy. 
We participate. We're doing something. We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as God is working within us both the will and the do according to his good pleasure. And probably the clearest passage I can think of to talk about it, and it's essential. The, re- the reason why I stress this is because oftentimes in our gospel presentations, we'll only deal with two of these things. Because glorification, going to heaven and being finally purified is the final piece. That, again, is instantaneous and a work of God. And frequently, the gospel is presented as, do you want to not go to hell and have your sins forgiven? Justification. Do you want to go to heaven and be with God? And we leave out, do you want the power to change and, and to be freed from being a slave to sin? Do you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you want to, you want to be able to change who you are? Do you, and we leave that bit out altogether. And, and yet, frequently, Jesus will emphasize that bit. That's, that's where the rub's going to be. The rub is going to be for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life, you're going to want to worship other gods. Are you going to come and follow me? That's, that's going to be the rub. And Levi forsakes all and comes after Christ. Second Peter 1, verse 3. Um, actually, let's pick it up. No, start in verse 3. This is probably my favorite passage, or what I think is one of the clearest or most helpful passages in getting assurance of salvation. Um, you'll see why in a minute. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Who, call, who called us to, okay, to his. By which he has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he's just listed all these promises God's given you, all these wonderful promises. For this reason, make every effort. Greek word, agonizo, strive. We get the word agonize from. It is to expend great effort. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Why? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. See, it's not a matter of meeting a bar or some level where you're good enough. It's what direction are you moving in? Whose son are you looking more and more like every day? A son of the devil or a son of God? That's, that's the ultimate question. It's not about here's some level of achievement. You're growing. I mean, there'll be setbacks and all, but you, there's, there's movement. For if these... Qualities are yours, and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these things, you'll never fall. So how do I make my salvation sure? How do I convince myself that I'm really a Christian? Here, at least, one of the strongest evidences is that increase, that growth. You can say what John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he used to be a slave trader, a captain of a slave ship. He said, I'm not who I should be. I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. He says, I'm not who I should be. I'm not even who I could be. But praise God, I'm not who I was. And so it's not a matter of, you know, are you as good as this person? Are you as good as this person? Which 
which, 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 which trajectory are you on and which, what, do you, what point are you moving towards, ever be it so slow? Um, are, you, are you growing in the knowledge of God and his son? Or are you going some other direction? And that's sanctification. And, um, and it is also an inescapable and essential element of our salvation. And so that's where Jesus can say things like, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Because if the fruit it keeps bearing, if the, if the road it's moving down is, is not looking like a fig tree, you can be pretty darn sure they're not Christians. But we're not saved by works. Fair enough. But the faith that saves will enter into this sanctification and this growth and this cultivation, and Father will discipline his kids. So where you don't see growth, you can reasonably reason there is no initial justification. Where there is no sanctification... There is no justification because they're all inseparably connected. So it's not that we're saved by obedience, but our obedience is the fruit the tree bears that shows it's alive. Does that, does that distinction make sense? Okay. Five minutes over. You've been very patient. Um, God willing, I'll see you next week. Greg Rolak, final prayer request, will be preaching next week. The very next section in Luke, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Pray for him and, uh, and be gracious to him. Okay. Godspeed. God bless.